you'll take your copy of God's Word, turn again to Romans 12. We will attempt to do here as we just sang, to hear the Word of the Lord. And though it's coming from me, some weeks it comes from Pastor Jeff, some weeks it might come from me or someone else, but ultimately we are here to receive the Word of the Lord. And so let us pray that he will speak today to us from the Apostle Paul in chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 1 through 16 like we did last week, because I think what we're talking about today is really part two of what we talked about last week. And we're going to build on the foundation uh, we set last week. So I will try to call to your mind some of the things we talked about last week as well. Romans chapter 12, excuse me, Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul has, in the previous sections, begun the renewing of the mind among the Christians in Rome. And he's done that by prompting them to rethink how they determine the significance of others. In the previous passage, they were to think about the distribution of the spiritual gifts. In this passage, the believers in Rome are to recognize that the motivation for their actions in the church society must be a sincere family type of love. Further, these actions must be pursued in an enduring, constant fashion in the face of many hardships. That is what Paul is trying to do in this section, building on what he's shown them. And when you leave church today, you must begin to do all these actions that are described in this passage. And you must find a way to do them in a sincere manner, and you must find a way to do them persistently. In other words, our actions in the church must look like the best of actions in a close-knit family. So we're going to look at that today, and we're going to look at uh, these actions in light of a family. And I want to pause to comment that I know that not everybody was raised in a family without problems. Uh, most families have conflict, but some families uh, have dissolution. Uh, parents leave, parents do uh, awful things, family members do awful things. So we're not trying today to present a naive view of the family or be ignorant of the fact that uh, not everyone experiences a good family, but, we, but Paul is drawing on uh, the idea of, of a family that functions well. And he's proposing that 
putting that forward as a model for how we're attacked in the church. So if you've not experienced that in your family, I'm sorry for that, but I'm not trying to present something that's naive. Rather, I'd ask you to think about what would that, those good relations in a family, what would those look like as we talk about family love here or familial love? I've been using that term familial love. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. So I may say uh, family love or love like in a family, but that's what I'm trying to talk about here. So let's look at what Paul has said here, because there's a lot in this passage, and it really is not only part two of what we looked at last week, where Paul says, hey, when you come into the church and you bring all these expectations from society, you need to reform that. And when you look at people, look at them based on the spiritual gifts that are given and the measure of faith, the length of faith, the strength of faith that people has has when you determine things like who should lead, who you should listen to in the church. In the same way, he's saying, take those ideas that you've gotten from society and your upbringing, and you're going to have to put those aside as well in the actions that underlie your use of the spiritual gifts. He's going to show us what those actions are today. So this is really part two. But commentators have noticed that uh, in this section, there's some overlap with what's going to come next. And so, for example, you'll see, uh, if you look down, you'll see a paragraph break at the end of 13. And I went on and read into uh, verse 16 in, in uh, Pastor Jeff's original outline. He had a break here, and I asked him if I could go a little further today. And guess what? Next week, I may go back and cover 14, 15, and 16 as well, because I think Paul is transitioning between these topics as he covers them, and he's not meant for us to see hard breaks, but for us to continue to apply as we roll through these different exhortations or encouragements or even commands that he gives us. And uh, we talked also a little bit about last week that in verse 3, he uses a term to think four times. Do you remember that? Four times he uses that. Well, in verse 16, he comes back to that, and three times he uses the term to think or similar terms again. So I think, one, he wants us to kind of package this section up as a little unit of text, and that's what I'm trying to do here. So what we think, how we think is very important to what we're going to do in the church. And remember, Paul is saying we have to reform we have to renew our mind. That was his thesis in verses 1 and 2. So let's look at verse 9. Let's begin there. And Paul, uh, there's a lot here. I'm going to have about four points just in verse 9. Uh, so come with me, if you will, back to this text. Having already talked about the spiritual gifts, he now gives us this very strong statement about love. Love, let love be genuine. Or really in the Greek, it's just, there's not even that imperative there. It's just genuine love. We're to fill in that, the idea that love in the church must be sincere. It must be without hypocrisy. And then if that's the idea, it becomes an imperative. It becomes something we're to do. Let us, when we love each other in the church, let us love each other sincerely. What is love? We are taught, you have been taught, you have grown up in a society that teaches you that love is a feeling, that it's an emotion that you have. Everybody you know, going all back, all the way back to the 1800s, has embraced and been taught and raised in this idea that love is just an emotion, a feeling that you have. But before that time, and certainly in the Bible, Love was not only a feeling or an emotion. In fact, in many cases, it, it had no emotional content to it. It was actions that we are to take. Love is also defined by Scripture. Love is not a matter of what we think it is. And remember our thesis from, from our, our heading in verses 1 and 2. You don't conform yourself to this age. Don't conform yourself to what you're taught by the society you've grown up in, but renew your mind, reform your mind, do a work of renovation in your mind. Well, we need to do that with our ideas of love too, right? We need to take what society has taught us and set that aside. And now we need to reform even our idea of what love is 
And where do we start? Let's start by looking in Scripture. Scripture has a lot to say about what love is. Scripture is going to, in fact, define love for us. So it's not a feeling we have. It's not what we think it is. It's what Scripture tells us it is. Well, love is taught to us by Christ. Let's look at what he says. Hold your finger there in uh, Romans 12 and turn back to Matthew 22. And if you are looking at the Word of God on an electronic device, I don't know what you do uh, in terms of holding your finger there, but turn back to Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus fresh off a verbal battle with the Sadducees has now come to be tested by a different group, the Pharisees, and they've sent someone who's an expert in the law of Moses to trick Jesus. And that expert in the law of Moses says in verse 36, chapter 22, Matthew 22, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now you see the word love there, and you see where is the root of that love? Where are you doing that love? It's in your heart. It's in your mind. And what has Paul said to us? We must give up our conformity to this age, and we must begin the renewal of the mind. So the great commandment is to have love for the Lord. And then he continues, this is the great and first commandment, but in verse 39, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see the word love there as well. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus said, says on these two commandments, loving the Lord your God, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of the Old Testament really is built on this foundation, all of the law that we have. So love is, first and foremost, devotion to God. But secondly, it is actions towards your neighbor, actions that you would do to yourself, implied there that things you wouldn't do to yourself, you certainly wouldn't do to a neighbor. Jesus is drawing on Leviticus 19.18. You don't have to turn back there. I've got it here, and I'll read it. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in the Old Testament, love was to be shown to the people of Israel, your neighbors, your countrymen. You were to love them, and you were to love them by doing to them things you would do to yourself and not doing to them things you would never do to yourself. Implicit there is the idea that you love yourself. You do good things to yourself and not evil. Jesus points out that this commandment and then the love of God, the full devotion to God in our minds and our hearts, these are the basis for the Old Testament. Indeed, love is the basis of our Scripture. The scripture talks about elsewhere. Uh, Paul talks about what love is in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. So there are many Scriptures that talk about what love is. We're going to see actions here today in this passage in Romans chapter 12. So I think that's what Jesus, that's what the Old Testament, that's what Paul is saying. Our love is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not what we conceive of it is, but it, they're concrete actions. And Paul's going to give us a list of actions, but just like he didn't give us a complete list of spiritual gifts, he's not going to give us a complete list of actions of love, he's going to give us a list that fits the context of what's going on in Rome. Remember, Paul is writing to a group of people in Rome who are going to see this. He's telling them, hey, these are the love actions you guys really need to do. But it's not all the actions that are out there. Scripture tells us what they are. So if you encounter an action that you don't know if it's loving or not, you're debating, should I do this, should I not do this? Scripture is a great place to turn. And you can start here in Romans 12. You can keep this as a note. But there are many other passages you can look at. And if you come back to our sermons faithfully, if you come back to Sunday school, we will encounter more of these passages where we're told how to love. So point one, love is not a feeling or an emotion. It is defined by Scripture. Point two, just in verse 9, 
Point two is that love must be sincere. The Greek word there is without hypocrisy. Love must be genuine, it must be sincere. Love must be without hypocrisy. So we're not talking about feelings mixed with doubts or contradictory uh, feelings and emotions, but we're talking about the acts that we have toward believers in the church, because remember Paul's writing to a group of believers in church, they have to be, those acts of love have to be consistent with this newly reformed way of thinking, this renewal of the mind, this rejection of how this age teaches us to think, how our society teaches us to think. As we reject that, as we reform that, our actions have to be consistent with that. They can't be hypocritically in contradiction. They have to be genuine actions with our newly reformed view, for example, of how people are, how we view people and their significance in the church. If we're going to look at others and say, well, I used to think this about you because of what I was taught in society, but now I think something new, doesn't it follow that I will show that thinking with my actions? And there'll be sincere actions. There'll be actions that comport with what I think. There'll be a relationship there. So point two is that our thoughts must, or our actions, our love actions, excuse me, must be sincere. They must be without hypocrisy. And you'll notice there's, there's a subtle genius here that uh, Paul obviously has an order to his text. Renew your minds and then look for these gifts. Look for your own gifts and begin to use them. Look for how other people use their gifts. That's what we looked at last week and receive the benefit. And now do these actions. And you, uh, no matter how you attempt to do what Paul is saying here in chapter 12, or even chapter 12 through 15, no matter where you start, you're going to arrive at these other things. Let me show you what I mean by that. You will, if you start at any of these points, you will arrive at a complete reformation if you are consistent and do them. Because, for example, if you start with the reforming of the mind, then you will move on to acts of love. But let's say you start with the acts of love. Let's say you're, you're thinking, this guy Landers, I don't know what he's talking about with reforming of the mind, but I do get what Paul is saying of acts of love. I'm going to attempt those. If you're going to do them without hypocrisy, though, What's going to change in you? If you're going to do the acts, if you're going to do them without hypocrisy, the only thing that can change is what you think. You see how doing these acts of love and attempting to do them sincerely result in the renewal of the mind, the reforming of what we think about other believers in the church. So Paul, he knows what he's doing here. You cannot do only some of the things that Paul is exhorting you to do in this passage. And really, 12.1 through 15.30, you can't just do some of those. You can't pick and choose. Because if you're going to do some of them and you're going to do them consistently, it's going to start working its way into these other areas of your life. You're going to be in for the whole renewal. If you're a believer, that's what you want. If you're an unbeliever, well, we'll talk about how that will not work for you later on. But let me come back to verse 9 because I'm not done. That's only two points. You've only got half the story of verse 9. Because Paul goes on in verse 9, what does he say? I'm stuck here in Matthew. Let me turn back to Romans 12. He says something like, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Or that word abhor is a fancy way of saying hate, strong hate, a strong passion against. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, cling to, be placed in, stand on good things. So in part of our actions of genuine love, Paul's going to give us a little bit of definition here. Genuine actions of love can't be evil actions. And you might say, well, yeah, that's obviously. But if you think back to trying to determine how we should treat each other in the church, if you think back to the context of people coming in with what society says is right, as they come into the church, they may be doing evil practices. And part of what we do when we become believers is God begins this work of sanctification. Putting off our sin, they need to put away their evil acts, and they need to do good works towards one another. So love, genuine love, is to hate acts of evil 
and to cling to, hold fast to, acts of good, good acts. Uh, what he's going to give us is not a complete list, but he's continuing that theme that he began in verse 3, that we're to have this different view. Look also uh, in verses 10 uh, and through 13. We're going to see as we read down here, he's going to define further what it is to hate evil, what it is to hold fast to what is good, what it, what it means to do acts of genuine and sincere love here. It's going to give us a list, but there's going to be two overriding themes. Now read, read them. I want, to, I want to see if in your mind if you can tease them out on your own. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So there's two overriding, if you were to summarize these ideas, you'll come up with two broad concepts in these actions. I'm not going to go into you know examples and details of each one because we'll be here all day. And I think you can see what it means, for example, to... To, to have zeal, right, as opposed to being lazy, what it means to contribute to other believers. Uh, if you have questions about those, we can go into those. But I want you to see the broader ideas here. First is, uh, embedded in these words here, in the actual Greek words that are used, are words of family love. You can see a little bit of that with, uh, in verse 10, for example, with brotherly affection. Who knows what the meaning of the, the, the name of the city of Philadelphia is, right? It's the city of brotherly love. Those are Greek words that means brotherly love. It's the same actual word here, Philadelphia, that's used of brotherly love. But the, what he begins with in verse 10, love one another, that's another Greek word that's only used of love within the family. You know, Greek has different words for love. Agape, eros, which is, you know, erotic love. Uh, philo, which is the love of friends or brothers, friend, we would call friendship, right? There's another rare Greek word that is used for love within the family, and that's the word that he uses right here in verse 10. So this love of one another, this brotherly love, is not a, you know, a hearty pat on the back, maybe that we've learned in society as far as brotherly love, but to really think and to act between believers in your church in Rome as if you are all in the same family. That's the command he's giving here. The same without do one another with honor. Does that mean we come in and we you know, bow to each other? I don't know how we show honor in our society. Our society has become a society that shows honor really to no one, right? But in the context of the ancient Roman world, if you remember, we talked about your significance in society came from your family, who they were. Even if you were poor, even if you yourself were a dim-witted fool, if you came from a significant Roman family, you were significant. And if you came from a lowly, despised, plebeian family, it didn't matter how competent you were, you were a nobody. Thou do one another to show honor in the way he's talking about is if we are of the same family, as Roman believers, we ought to show each other in advancing as the Romans do for their families, their family members. Roman citizens would go around in prominent families and try to get their family members in other positions of power to advance their family. Okay. Now Paul's talking about in the church. If we look at each other as if we are in a family together, then we want to advance each other. We want to advance the honor of each other as if we are one family. Imagine that if you're a Jew coming into the church. Radical things, Paul's saying. Because as a, as a Jew in the Roman church, you're surrounded by all these low Gentiles who can never be part of the family of God. Paul's saying they're now your family, not in an overly you know, uh, spiritualized sense that we might say today, but literally your actions to them are to be as if they are in your family. He's not talking about feelings. He's not talking about emotions. 
He's not talking about put whatever words we want in for family. He's talking about literally treat these other Roman believers as if they are in, as if we're all in the same family together. He does this again. Drop down with me uh, to verse thirteen. Contribute to the needs of the saints. That word, their contribute is to have in common. Koinonia, that's used in Acts two, after the Pentecost. All these that came into the church. Poor, desperate people. People began selling fields, bringing in money, contributing so that there was no need. They treated each other as if they were all in the same family. Seek to show hospitality. The words there are used about believers that are fleeing persecution. If believers come to your church fleeing persecution and they've lost everything, well, you don't say, well, we don't want persecution to come here. Let's leave them outside. No, you treat them as if it was a family fleeing war or pestilence or famine. What would you do? You would take them in. You would feed them. You'd give them the back room, right? You would treat them like you would treat other family relations. That's the context here and the commands he's given is to treat each other with our actions. I can't stress this enough. Not, he's not talking about your feelings. He's not talking about your emotions. He's talking about with your thoughts and in what you do, begin to look at each other as if we, you know, we could say today as if we all had the last name, same last name. If we're all cousins, if we're all brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, how would you treat those people? Now you see what I've said. Some of you may be thinking, I've been treated awfully by my family. I don't want, I'm not saying treat people here awfully, right? I'm not trying to present a naive view of family where there are no problems. But think about how a family ought to treat each other. Paul is now saying, just because you're from different cultures, some of you are Romans, some of you are Greeks, some of you are barbarians, some of you are Jews, all that's irrelevant now. You're one family in Christ, and your actions need to comport with that. The second big theme here in this uh, passage, uh, 10 through 13, is endurance. Look at verses 11 and 12 as I read them and see if you can find words that go together that are very similar in their idea. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Do you see them there? Fervency, hope, patience, constancy. These are all words that describe long actions, actions over a long period of time. They describe actions of endurance. So this isn't to be a flash in the pan activity, but it's to be an enduring activity. And notice in the very center of 11 and 12, you see serve the Lord. But that's what Paul's been talking about. Remember what he said in 12.2, to put off, to not be conformed to this age, but to be renewed in your mind, what is that? To present yourself as a holy sacrifice to God, what is that? It's your spiritual worship. It's your reasonable service. So he's repeating here. What I was trying to tell you to do in my introduction, now I'm giving you the details. Serve the Lord by treating each other as a family in your actions and to endure in it. Do it zealously. Do it with fervency. Do it with hope. If you've ever been in a family where things don't go well, you need hope that things will go better in the future, right? Or you're tempted to abandon that family. So Paul reminds these Roman believers and us that what he's calling us to do are actions done in a, the familial setting. See, that doesn't roll off your tongue very well. In the, the family setting of the church that is serving one another and enduring in these actions. Now, we're going to continue on. We're going to go down to verse 14. Here Paul quotes Jesus. He's quoting Matthew chapter 5. So hold your finger there and turn back to Matthew 5. If you know Matthew 5, part of that is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives these statements of uh, blessing, the Beatitudes. You know, uh, blessed is uh, the poor in spirit, for example, and so on. He talks about Christ coming to, Christ not overturning the law and the prophets, but fulfilling the law. 
And he goes over on to overturn what the Pharisees had, had taught regarding anger, regarding lust, regarding divorce, regarding oaths, and regarding revenge. And in verse 43, he says, You have heard that it is said, it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Didn't we see that in Leviticus 19, 18? Right? And hate your enemy. This is something the Pharisees had added on to the teaching of the Old Testament. It's okay to love the Israelites, but those awful Canaanites, you can hate them with lust, lusty hate in your heart. Well, what does Jesus say? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that may, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What Paul commands us here in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not persecute them. I think he's pulling exactly what Jesus has already taught. Jesus broadens this from the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you're going to have to love everybody as yourself, even the people who are your enemies, even the people who want to kill you, even the people who hate you. Jesus broadens it to everyone. Because they're either your neighbors or they're your enemies. Paul brings the focus back to his context here, and he reinforces what he's talking about in terms of our actions within the church. Now, next week we're going to talk about vengeance, and we're going to go on, so I'm going to come back to this. But, but imagine if Paul is talking about not just outsiders, but in the context of the church. Imagine if Paul is saying to you, even in the church, if someone begins to persecute you wrongly, because that shouldn't go on in the church, you don't curse those people. What do you do? You bless them. That's Jesus' teaching for everyone. How much more true has it, ha, does it have to be in the church to people you say are your family? Parents, if you've had a wayward child, that child curses you, do you stop loving them? No, your heart's broken. You, 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 know, you do as much as you can to try to bring that child back. You bless and pray over them. That's what Paul is saying to do here within the church in Rome. You must not curse other believers, even if they are wrongly persecuting you in the context of the church. And also outsiders, we're going to talk about that uh, as we go on. But right now, let's just focus in on within the church. And then the last few verses here. Paul's going to sum up. He's going to remind us of what he said in verse 3. Remember, I, I talked about in verse 3, he uses that term to think four times. He's returning to that idea. Look at the beginning of verse 15. My ESV says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And then in 16, live in harmony with one another. In 16 there, the ESV is trying to kind of smooth out some very rough Greek there. But the words there are literally think the same way about things. You see how the, the, the translation committee turns that into live in harmony. And I think they're right. To live in harmony, though, you've got to have this same way of viewing things. Now, he doesn't mean just blindly turn off your brain, you know, and be told how to think. But look at verse 15. If you're going to rejoice with those who rejoice, don't you have to see that what is good that happens to them that causes them to rejoice? Don't you have to also see it as good? If you hate what happens to them, you're not going to rejoice with them. Think the same way. So if something good happens to a believer in the church, you think, wow, that's great. You're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing, because it's a good thing. In the same way, if something awful happens and they weep, you don't think, well, uh, they got theirs. That's not having the same mind. That's not thinking the same way. You weep with them because it affects them. It affects you. So he's returned to this idea of thinking the same, thinking, having the right way of thinking, thinking uh, with a like mind with other people. And he takes it as far as he can go uh, with these last few verses. Uh, in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Do not have a high, way, high th thoughts of yourself. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Remember, that's what he said in verse 3. That's what haughty means but associate with the lowly. 
Look at your, my ESV has a note there. And if I look down, it gives another alternative translation. Give yourselves to humble tasks. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but actually give yourself over to doing lowly things within the church. Now, in context, think back to our example of a Roman family. Let's say you're a Roman man who's come from some significant Roman family. Are you the one who cleans the toilets in the church? No. You wouldn't think that because you're from some lofty family. You're the head of your household. You might have slaves to do that or servants. But when you come into the church, if you're going to reform how you think about your significance in the world, are you going to be more amenable to doing the lowly tasks that are in the church? Think about that in the context of the spiritual gifts. You may be come in with great significance in the world, but your spiritual gift might be to serve others. And it might be your slave who comes in the church with the spiritual gift of teaching. Are you going to sit under the teaching of this person who in the outside world is lowly? Now, we, we have a much more egalitarian society, and we think, yeah, of course you should. But this is radical for the Romans. It could have real repercussions outside of the church. To see a slave elevated, that might make the authorities nervous. To see a lofty man doing things that he shouldn't do in good society. You see how Paul is calling us to a radical change in our way of willing. Now, we're not saying that those people rich have to come in and act poor, right? Paul's already given us these are the spiritual gifts. We have to look for those gifts. We have to see how they should be applied, right? He's not saying automatically elevate those just because they're of low society. But he's taking the context as far as he can. If we're going to do what he says, if we're going to begin to renew our minds, reform how we think about each other, well, it may cause us to do things we wouldn't normally do. Do you see that there? Especially if we're going to do them in terms of familial love. Especially if we're going to do them in terms of serving the Lord with endurance. I think that's Paul's point here. So what does it matter to you? Because you're not Romans, right? And Christians in Rome are no longer members of different families that have their own status in Roman society, but are far, part of one family within church society. And so actions toward each other have to change to conform, to be consistent with the teaching of Scripture, to love God first, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's applying these commands directly to the situation in hand. And so now we need to take these actions, and some of them are very clear, contribute to the needy among you. I mean, that's, that's a very obvious thing. But putting it in the context, there's more here we need to take out of it. And that means renewing how we think about our significance. And if you've noticed, you, hopefully you're sitting here and you're squirming a little bit. Because let me tell you, you've not done these things perfectly. I've not done these things perfectly. Let's listen to this insight from John Calvin. This is arduous. That's what he says about this passage. And wholly opposed to the nature of man. See, if you're squirming in your chair, it's because Paul sets a standard that's way up here. Paul sets a standard that's completely the opposite of what we want to do. And so these are hard things. These are hard things. He's presenting an ideal that we need to work to. What he's not doing is presenting an ideal and saying, you failed and you're no longer useful to the kingdom. You see that? So if you have not done these things in the past, the time is now to start doing them. The time is not to say, I don't think I can do these. They seem impossible. I'm, I'm here to tell you, they do seem impossible. They're wholly uh, opposite to what your fallen heart wants to do. Nevertheless, Paul encourages us to begin doing them. Now look at what Calvin goes on to say. There's nothing too arduous to be overcome by the power of God, which shall never be wanting to us, provided we neglect not to seek for it. Paul said that we can only do these things if we're led by the Spirit 
And if we do them under the power of the Holy Spirit, you believers out there, you can try to do these things and you can try to do them with zeal and you can try to do them with gusto. And if you fail, praise the Lord because your salvation doesn't rest on these works. You are already as a believer pleasing to God. Even if you've shipwrecked these things, you're already pleasing to God. So we can start today if we haven't done them. If you have done these, you can continue. You can do them with zeal. You can continue to do them more. And again, we all have to do them over a long period of time, our whole time on this earth as believers in the church. So Calvin's excellent point here is that hardly any believer has attained this, but not no one is a believer who isn't working towards the action of love in view in these passages. You get that? That's your task today is to work towards these things, not to be perfect in them. So what are they again? Sincere family type love actions. They're the bedrock, bedrock of all actions in the church. Love is the foundation. Actions on top of those that are based on and rooted in that foundation and then the spiritual gifts above them. The stuff Paul's going to go on to in the next several chapters. If you're going to do any of these things, you've got to be right with God, and then you've got to have the right view of each other. Zeal and endurance are necessary in equal measures. We can't be lazy, but we do also have to recognize that we are running a long race. So to achieve these two things, only spirit-led and spirit-empowered actions will enable us to accomplish these things over a long course of a believer's life. How do we get the Spirit to strengthen us to do these things? We pray for a measure of the Spirit to do them. We show a desire to do them, and then we ask the Lord to enable us and to help us to do them. Finally, each believer must conform to this mindset toward one another. And the ultimate expression if you're, if you're going to look around, and, and I haven't really gone into this, a lot of these actions will be done in private. They're not things that you will see being done. We shouldn't come into the church and do them. Hey, look, over here I'm doing love actions, right? That's not what we're talking about. But you will see the results, and what are the results you'll see? You'll see some influencer, someone powerful out in society coming in and doing lowly things. And you might think, well, that's, that's a little odd. But that's the fullest expression. You'll see some needy, despised person in society having their needs met. Maybe not necessarily just material needs, but spiritual needs. You'll see a change in how we treat each other, and it'll be a contrast with what society is doing around us. So let me give you an example. Um, and, I, and let me just give you an example of how a family would deal with something like this. And you'll have to take that to think about how, as a church, we would deal with this. But let's say, let's say someone, and you've got a family of people, a couple of cars, and one of them has a, a, a broke-down car, right? Well, what does the family do? Do they say to that member of the family with a broken car, deal with it yourself? No. Some people might have to go, you know, cancel things to go help that person out. Other people might have to, within the family, loan a car. Other people might have to come up with some money to help out in getting a new car or looking for a new car. They don't all drop everything for that one person, but they also don't shun that person and let them deal with it. They pull together. This is the ideal, right? They pull together and figure out how they can all work, not just to help the person who's having a difficulty, but also to meet the needs of all the other people in the family. In other words, they don't say, let's now neglect these people in favor of this one who's having trouble. And they don't say, well, we can't help them because we've got these needy. They all contribute together to try to make this right. I don't have an example of that in the church, but I think how you can see how in the life of your family, there have been times when these things have happened. And maybe it's been dealt with badly in your family, right? and you've experienced bad family situations. But maybe you've also seen how a family pulls together to deal with this, and there's many different expressions, right? I'm not, not pointing to my family or someone else's family is the right way to do this, 
just trying to get you to think about how everybody pulls together in a close-knit family to make to make sure everything needs to be done. So you might have examples in your family where that has happened. That's what we need to start doing in the church. It's not my family and Bo's family, Dale's family and the Sanders, people in the back, the people that like to sit way over there. It's one family. Now, yeah, we're going to have different last names, right? But I'm not calling you to drop everything to put some people at the top. And we're not saying that we're going to shun some people because we don't like the cut of their jib or we don't like the fact that they descend from Oklahomans or whatever it is. We're going to view each other as a family. And we're not going to see all these actions because we're going to do them sincerely. But we're going to see the benefits. Sometimes we'll be helped. Sometimes we'll help others, but we'll begin to see the results percolate up and we'll see a dividing line between us and the society around us. So Paul ends this section, if you're a believer, by imploring his listeners to think about their actions. So are your actions toward others in this church the actions that would occur in your natural family? Let us begin to evaluate our actions in light of these two chief points. Love, family-type love rooted in Scripture? Is that the basis of our actions towards others? Notice I'm not talking about our feelings. I'm not talking about uh, what we might think love is, but actions that are rooted in what Scripture tells us to do. And then are we pursuing these actions? Do we get weary in doing them? We need to do these actions with a mixture of both zeal, but also that endurance that long-term view of commitment to one another. And then can we, see the sol- can we see the results? The real test believer is if society looked at you, not at a point in time, but over a long time, society looks at our church, will they see, and those people are very different from us. Or they, they're just like the rest of us. Are the lowly helped? Are the important helping others? And if you're an unbeliever here, how on earth will you do this? How will you have any desire or ability to do what Paul commands in this passage? If you don't have the leading of the Spirit or His strength, how can you serve each other, others, with love as described by Paul? What would the unbelievers do in church? They'll seek the benefit of themselves, of their natural family. They will seek, for example, the benefit of their children. You see this in children, sorry, in churches sometimes. My children have to have X, Y, and Z. We've got to make sure my kids have a good, safe playground. Got to make sure my kids have a good program in the church. Now, sometimes it is true. Kids have to have, you know, different things in the church. The point is, you can see that heightening in unbelievers in the church, especially with how they defend their children. So if you're an unbeliever here today, and, and, and I'm not bringing that as an example that's going on here, I'm just saying that's an example that you can often see. If you're an unbeliever here today, that's what you're going to do. That's how we're going to come to know you if you try to do what Paul is saying. And if you have any interest in doing what Paul says in Romans, what you need to do first is embrace Christ. What you need to do first is get that Holy Spirit, get a hold of that Holy Spirit, and you don't seize that. You repent of your sins, you embrace Christ, you receive baptism, then you receive the Holy Spirit. So that's what unbelievers need to do. So Paul, uh, in closing here, has begun the work of renewing your mind. He's begun the work of renewing my mind. I'm not... When I say you here, I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to the rest of you. Paul is prompting you and I to rethink the significance of other believers. In the previous passage, it was about the distribution of spiritual gifts and who is important in the church. Here, we must recognize that our actions in the church society have to be motivated by sincere family type of love actions that are rooted in what Scripture defines as love. And we must pursue them in an enduring, consistent fashion. 
and we're going to face a lot of hardships. This is an arduous, unnatural thing to do. We have to keep that in mind. So when you leave church today, make a start in these things. How are you going to start to do these things? Whatever's come, come in the past, whatever we've done, let's repent of it and let's think, how today am I going to start doing these things? How are my actions, how are your actions going to look like the best of actions in a close-knit family? How will you begin to look for and look after the needs of your church family, your, your church society? If you are an influencer, if you are a powerful member of society, probably none of us think we are, and that's fine, but if you are, how will you look to see if you can associate, and what way can you associate with the lowly? And if you are lowly and needy, how will you contribute? And will you cling to your pride, or will you receive from your family at church? In other words, how are you, how am I going to begin today to show unhypocritical actions of love to each other? How are we going to be prepared for a zealous, fervent, hopeful, and constant service to the Lord? We need to do it by serving one another. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we take the warning of John Calvin, seriously, we can't do these things. What Paul has set out is such an enormous and difficult task uh, for us to do, for us to do in the light of a mocking and evil society that will hate us for doing these things, uh, for us to do in light of our hearts and the hardness of our hearts. We just appeal to you to begin the work within us, begin this work that Paul's talking about, Cause us to begin to do these things. Help us to make a start. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us to begin to do these things. I know people have done acts of love and service to one another in this church. But we can do, and we ought to do more. And we ought to crave the sanctification that will occur, the holiness that you will give us by doing these things. So, Lord, we pray, make a start within us today. Make a new, fresh start by pouring out your Spirit on us. Lead us in these things, strengthen us, enable us to do them, cause us to do them, help us to fight against our hardness of heart, help us to fight against the spirit of this world that doesn't want to see these things. And ultimately, Lord, be glorified in all these things. Let us not do these things for ourselves. Let us do these things for one another because we're doing them for you. And I pray that you'll do all these things that you've commanded in your word. In the name of Christ, amen.